Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus Christ. That he lived, that he died, that he rose to give us life. Father, there is nothing we could ever do to earn that, to repay that, and yet you give it freely because you love us. And so, Father, today as we go to your word together, I pray that we would love you, that we would devote our minds and our hearts during this time to your word, that we would seek to understand it, that we would seek to obey it, that we would seek to be changed by it, knowing that we cannot accomplish any of those things through our own power. Yet not us, but through Christ in us. Father, I pray that you would bless your people here today, that as we look together at resurrection, that our hearts would be encouraged, that our souls would be stirred, that Christ would be made much of in our hearts. And we pray this in his name and for his glory forever. Amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. All this month, we have been looking together at different resurrections in Scripture and what they reveal about God and about us. When Elijah raised the widow's son, we saw how our ultimate problem is not death, but sin, as Pastor Michael so, so well put it. When Elisha raised the Shunammite woman's son, we saw how the promises of God can always be trusted. And last week, as we looked together at Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, we saw the power of Jesus Christ over death and the ways that resurrection reveals His heart and His nature to us. And today we're going to conclude our series on resurrection by addressing Jesus' resurrection and ours. We're going to examine how they are connected and we're going to consider how that connection, how Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection should bring us hope and joy. But before we dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we need to get some context. The Corinthian church had issues. I'm going to put it as mildly as I can. They had issues. Paul's letters to the Corinthians are basically Paul just over and over again saying, what is wrong with you people? And chapter 15 is no different. Corinth was a major port city, which meant that it was a mixture of cultures from all over the world. And like most cultural mixes in worldly settings, they start to pride themselves on how much of the different cultural ideas that they can intermingle with their own, showing themselves to be enlightened. 
They don't have a firm grasp on truth in that culture. What instead they have is this idea that I can borrow a little bit from here and a little bit from there, and it just makes me a more well-rounded, enlightened kind of person. It's also a major Greek city, which means that they pride themselves on being cultured rather than barbaric, which is how they view other non-Greek areas. To Greeks, there's literally only two categories of people, Greeks and barbarians. And if you ain't Greek, you're a barbarian. It's basically how they view it. So they see themselves as very cultured, and they have this, inter, this intermingledness of all these different worldly thoughts and ideas, and they're just at the top of the intellectual food chain. In fact, Paul opens the letter to the Corinthians with, with telling them, you guys think you're smart, and you're not. And even if you were, that's not the point. And so here, what we find is that these things created issues within the church at Corinth because of their strange ideas. And one of those problems in the church at Corinth was the denial of the bodily resurrection of Christians. You see, there's this Greek view that everything physical is inherently wicked and is going to pass away. And that the soul or the spiritual things, those things are going to be lasting. And so to, to the Corinthian church, it was like, hey, listen, this is fine. This is all going to pass away. This is going to die. It's not a big deal. This is all disconnected from God anyway. So how we live, what we do, none of that actually matters. When we die, our souls go to be with God and what we do here in this life doesn't matter because it's already wicked anyway. And so in chapter 15, Paul is arguing against this. And given the significant amount of argumentation that Paul does here in chapter 15, I think we should walk into this recognizing just how important the issue of bodily resurrection is for Christians. In fact, that's where Paul begins. If you got one of our bulletins or one of our sermon listening guides, you'll see that there are three points this morning. The first point is the vital nature of the resurrection. The vital nature of the resurrection. Let's look together at the first 19 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says this, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 
We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul opens this chapter, this passage, with a reminder of the gospel. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And he says, which you received, meaning you heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, you submitted yourselves to the lordship of Christ under the gospel. And then he says, in which you stand... This is the way that they know that they know God because their lives are continuing to be shaped by the truth of the gospel. And then he says, by which you are being saved. Now it's important here to understand that Paul is not referring to salvation in the sense of being justified where we are made righteous before God because justification is a one-time event that does not need continual work. That is why Jesus said, it is finished and not, it's a work in progress. What Paul is talking about here is saved in the sense of being sanctified, being changed and shaped to be more like Jesus over the course of your life. You see, a right understanding of the gospel is at the heart of our sanctification. Because when we know that we cannot do anything to earn the favor of God, then we no longer view obedience to the law as a ticket to heaven. But instead, we only recognize that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is our ticket to heaven. We no longer can think, we can't obey our way into the good graces of God. It's not through us, but through Christ in us that we know Jesus, that we know the Lord. But there's an important caveat here that Paul makes when he's talking to them about the gospel. When he says, you received it, you stand in it, you're being saved. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. At first glance, that might seem like Paul is saying salvation can be lost. That you have to keep holding on to it because you might fall away from it. But as if you've been here before, you've probably heard me say this multiple times. It is impossible to lose your salvation. You did nothing to earn it. Therefore, you can do nothing to lose it. You can't lose something you didn't purchase, you didn't earn. It was given to you by God in the power of His Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ, and He's not going to take it away. What Paul is saying here, he's talking about those who seem to receive the gospel, but their lives ultimately show that that is not the case. All of us know people who at some point or another in their lives have made a public profession, who have walked down an aisle, who have prayed a prayer, who may have even been baptized in that baptistry right there. And their lives are not marked by Christlikeness because all that was was empty words and hollow actions. They were not actually in Christ. John says in the book of 1 John that those who go out from us do so because they are not of us. 
The life of the Christian is marked by repentance from sin, which includes a turning from sin. This is the evidence of having received the gospel. It's more than just saying, I'm sorry that I sinned. It's actively striving to not sin. Anyone who says to you, I'm a Christian, it's all covered by the blood of Jesus, so I can just do whatever I want to, that is not a Christian. We should not trifle with the things that Jesus died for. And another evidence that Paul shows us here, beyond just repentance, is submission to the Scriptures in your understanding. I want to make sure that I'm really clear about what I mean here. I'm not telling you submission to what I say about the Scriptures. I'm saying submission to what the Scriptures are saying. If you have a spot where you say, this is what I think, and you are shown from God's Word why you are wrong, Christians then say, well, I'm wrong, and I need to adjust my understanding to align with the Word of God. Christians cannot say, well, I don't like that, so I'm just going to keep believing what I want. I think this, I believe this, so I'm just going to keep, keep on keeping on. That is not how Christians think. And that's what Paul is talking about here. We have to have right doctrine that is shaped by the Word of God. The Corinthians don't have that. And that's what Paul is going to address in just a moment. Because we need to understand that refusal to acknowledge the truth of the text of God's Word is a problem. It's a problem. It's a real significant problem. And so Paul says to them, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He affirms for them, he reaffirms for them the truth that he taught them. Jesus died for our sins. Paul says that he did that in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul doesn't just say, take my word for it. He gives affirmation of it. He says, the Scriptures testify about this. And then he says, he was buried. You want more affirmation of the death of Jesus? They put him in a tomb. There are some today, even major world religions like Islam, that say Jesus didn't actually die. He fainted on the cross. They put him in a tomb. Nobody survived crucifixion. That doesn't happen. And so Paul is saying, you want to know that Jesus died? It's affirmed by his burial. And then he says, he was raised on the third day. All of these things are important for us to understand. First of all, he says that resurrection is affirmed by the Old Testament. I just want to read you three passages out of the book of Psalms, just so you hear it. Therefore, my heart is glad. This is Psalm 16, 9 and 10. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sorry, that's just one. I didn't put all three. And not only is it affirmed by the Scriptures... Paul goes even further, and he says, and listen, if you don't want to take the Scripture's word for it, there are more than 500 people who saw Jesus after he rose from the grave. They saw Jesus walking around with holes in his wrists and holes in his feet and a hole in his side. They saw him. They know that he died and was buried and rose again. And Paul says most of those people are still alive. 
So if you don't want to take the Scripture's word for it, if you don't want to take my word for it, I'll give you a whole list of people you can contact. The resurrection is affirmed by living witnesses. And then Paul goes on, and what he is saying here is that you must believe this. You must believe that Jesus rose from the grave. And not only must you believe that, you must also believe that you, Christian, will rise from the grave. All Christians must believe this. There has been a movement over the last 70 or so years to push against doctrine and theology in favor of simplifying the gospel. We've all heard the ABCs, right? We say them every year at Vacation Bible School. Admit, believe, confess. Admit, believe, confess. And now, in our churches, we all think that's the gospel. That's the extent of what a Christian must believe to be a Christian. Everything else is lanyard. There is nothing inherently wrong with the ABC approach. So long as you don't forget that there's still the rest of the alphabet. Just like we wouldn't tell a kindergartner that they've mastered the alphabet if they know A, B, C, and that's all. We should never tell people, Christians, that they believe and understand the fullness of what is necessary for Christians to believe because they know the ABCs. There is much more that we must understand. That's what happened with the Corinthian church. They got the basics right, but Paul is going to illustrate for them that there's more that they must understand because there are implications back onto the gospel that he just laid out for us. So Paul is essentially laying out for them the gospel that these things took place, and what he's going to show is your wrong belief about bodily resurrection negates the gospel. And so you have to believe this. Essentially, Paul is saying, as he continues in verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Because if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He's telling the Corinthians, you must believe in bodily resurrection. If you say there's no bodily resurrection, you're saying you don't believe Jesus was resurrected. And if Jesus wasn't resurrected, you have no hope. You are dead in your sins. There is nothing for you here. If Christ is still in his grave, we are still in our sins. And so he's telling the Corinthians, you have to believe in bodily resurrection. And you know what? I'm going to be real with you guys. When I was at my church in California serving as the associate pastor, I preached on Sunday nights. And I preached through the book of 1 Corinthians. And when I got to this part of 1 Corinthians and I preached on bodily resurrection, I had several different church members come to me and go, I have never heard that before. I didn't know this was a thing. If you had asked me before you preached that sermon, what happens to you when you die? I would say, well, my soul goes to heaven to be with Jesus. And then if you said, well, what happens when Jesus comes back? I don't know. We must believe this because if we don't we completely negate the whole gospel it is vital to our salvation our sanctification to everything to believe in the resurrection of christians from the grave 
That brings us to verses 20 through 34 where we see the subjection of all things. The subjection of all things. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Where our last section found Paul making his argument about resurrection from a logical sense, saying, if there's no resurrection, then Christ isn't raised. Paul here makes his argument in a theological sense. He calls Jesus Christ the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits are the very first of the harvest, and they're considered to be the best, as well as an indicator of the quality of what's to come thereafter. And so Paul is saying, because Christ rose and he is the first fruits, we are the rest of the harvest. He's making this theological argument, and his argument here has to do with our relations to Adam and to Christ as our federal head, which Paul covers masterfully in Romans 5. And I'm not going to go there today because it's a lot, but just know that that's, that's the basis of what he's arguing here. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. And so Paul says, in Adam, all die. Because of the sin of Adam, all of us die. We are all in death. We are born into sin and death, and we will die. And not just physically die, but spiritual death as well. Separation from the good, gracious nature of God. But in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now to be clear, Paul says in verse 23 that the all in Christ is not every single person in the world. The all in Christ is those who belong to Christ. That's what he says in verse 23. So what Paul is saying here is that when Jesus returns, all his people from all time will be given resurrection bodies like Jesus has. I cannot tell you with certainty what that's going to be like. One of teenagers' favorite questions to ask me when we've had this conversation is, do we get like superpowers? Can we fly can we see through walls? Do I get laser vision? I don't know. Maybe. That's not really what's important here. I can't say with certainty what they are like. I can't answer all the questions, but I can say 
that we should safely presume that they are like Jesus' resurrection body. That our new bodies are going to be like his. So they are physical bodies. After Jesus rose, he had a physical body. Remember, the disciples touched his hands. They touched his side. He ate with them. But he also teleported around. I don't know if that's something that's going to be in our skill set with a resurrection body. Or if that's unique to Jesus, I'm not sure. But that's what we know. We will be made new just like Jesus. And to deny this is to deny that Jesus is the one leading us from the grave to God. And so Paul says, you have all of these things that are evidences of why you should believe in the resurrection of the dead. That if the, if the dead aren't raised and Christ isn't raised, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ, and Christ is the first fruits. And then Paul says, after this, after this resurrection, then comes the end. Then comes the end. After after the resurrection of Christians to their new resurrection bodies, the kingdom in all its fullness is delivered over to the Father. Jesus says all things are now fully and totally subjected to God. Everything not submitted to the authority, is, to the authority of God is fully and totally destroyed. You see, the delay in Jesus' coming is about the advance of the church throughout the world. But there will be a day when Jesus will come back and every enemy of His will be slain forever. That's what we, every time we take the Lord's Supper, long for at the end when we say together, Come, Lord Jesus. We are longing for the day that He returns and subjects all things to the authority of God in His kingdom. And he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. One of the things that we long for, that we long for is the end of death. Death is horrific and it's painful and it's, it, it brings so much sorrow and we long for the end of it, that one day there will be no more death. Well, here's what you need to understand. The resurrection is necessary because it is the means by which God is subjecting all things, even death, under the authority of Jesus Christ. Psalm 8, 5, and 6 says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. We must hope in our resurrection because at that moment is when the kingdom of God is in its fullness. And then Paul says some weird stuff. He says some weird stuff. In 27 and 28, Paul gets really technical and complicated. And he says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, 
so that God may be all in all. Clear as mud? All right. So, I'm going to try to condense this down really quickly. We learned in our Trinity study in theology class about the imminent Trinity and the economic Trinity. And I'm not going to call on anybody who was there to explain it. I'll do that. Essentially, the imminent Trinity is the internal working of the Trinity, how the, the, the persons of the Trinity relate to one another, how the Trinity relates to themselves. The economic Trinity is how the Trinity relates to anything outside of themselves. So essentially, how the Trinity interacts or, or relates to creation. So Jesus, in the incarnation, where the Son of God took on flesh, has two natures, fully God, fully man, Jesus in the incarnation is subjected to the Father just as he was on earth. So if you read through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus saying, I do the will of my Father. I only do what the Father wills me to do. You see him talking that way. That is Jesus speaking as Jesus the man. Okay? The Son, a.k.a. the economic, or the, the imminent Trinity, excuse me, is co-equal with the Father, just as he has been from eternity. When we think about the interrelationships, the intra-relationships within the Trinity, they are all co-equal. There is no authority or submission within the Trinity. But the Son, in human flesh, is eternally subjected to the Father. Does that make sense? Slightly more clear mud? The incarnate Jesus is everlasting. Which means having existence from a point in time and then continuing on forever. The Son is eternal. Having existence from eternity past into eternity future. Okay? That's where the distinction lies. And then the next thing that Paul says that gets taken out of context a lot is he says that God may be all in all. Some Eastern religions and even some so-called Christians who like to dabble in mysticism <clears throat> take this to mean that God will be everything and everything will be God. But what Paul is saying here is that everything will be fully and finally submitted to the supreme authority of God and that his authority will never be challenged again. That's what he means when he says God may be all in all. There will never be rebellion against God again. There will never be sin. There will never be second thoughts. There will never be internal wonderings of is God really good? All of that is gone forever. Then Paul says, just going on with all the weird stuff, Paul says in verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If you have been a part of the Christian church for very long, you will recognize that this is not something that we do. We don't baptize on behalf of the dead, whether we're baptizing for the dead or vicariously through the dead, whatever it may be, we don't do that. Mormons do that. Mormons do that, but we're not Mormons, and Mormons aren't Christians. So what is Paul talking about here? Well, scholars are very divided on this. There's a lot of thoughts. None of them believe that Paul is commending something as good here. All right, so nobody read this and goes, should we be baptizing for the dead? 
That's not what's happening here. The primary scholarly position, and the one that I agree with, is that the Corinthian church had so many issues. They were doing so many things that were wrong. Their doctrine was so far afield that Paul could not cover all of those issues in one letter. So what he decided to do was really hit the important stuff. It is more significant that the Corinthian church denies bodily resurrection than that they seem to be baptizing on behalf of the dead. And so Paul is not commending this. He's not saying this is a good thing. What he's doing is he's pointing to yet another thing they're doing wrong and showing them their own logical inconsistency. He's saying, you guys baptize on behalf of the dead. Why? If you don't believe the dead are going to rise again, what's even the point of that? Does that make sense? Paul is not talking about this in the sense of saying, you should all be baptizing on behalf of the dead because it's a good thing. He's saying, even this really weird wrong thing y'all do doesn't make sense in light of your position. So you should rethink your position. That's what I believe is happening here. And then Paul concludes this section by pointing out that any risk-taking for the gospel is absurd if there is no resurrection. Paul essentially says, why, why am I in danger all the time? Why, why do I subject myself to these things? Why am I fighting literal beasts at Ephesus? Why would I even bother with this? Because if there is no resurrection, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no hope in this life, why bother? Why commit myself to the spread of the gospel into places that literally want to murder me? It's like, why would I do that? I would just go home and party if there's nothing after this. That's how the Corinthians are living. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The first century version of YOLO, you only live once. But their focus on their own pleasure in this life has led to some in their midst having no knowledge of God. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul addresses an issue of sexual sin within the church where a man is having an illicit affair with his stepmother. And Paul says... And you're, you permit this and you're arrogant. He says, you guys are so far off that you, bro that you boast about tolerating sin that even the pagans wouldn't tolerate. And so even here, he says to them, there at the end of verse 34, he says, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Their focus on their own pleasure, because they only live once, has led to people in their church having no knowledge of God. If all things are in subjection to Christ, then our lives matter because they continue on after we are dead. Our final point today is the perishable and the imperishable. The perishable and the imperishable. Paul says this beginning in verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it, as a, gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for human, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. 
There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For, the star, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? This is not a genuine question. There are genuine questions, people who, have, who genuinely want the answer. And then there are obnoxious questions, gotcha questions, where they're trying to trick you or trap you. And essentially this question is to say, I've never seen a resurrection body. Your position makes no sense because I've never seen it. This doesn't make any sense. And so Paul makes arguments from nature. He talks about seeds. He says, when you plant a seed, the seed has to die before it can live. It puts off the husk and then grows into something completely different. If you've ever planted a seed, you might know what that seed's going to grow into. Brother Mike plants a garden. He can probably identify seeds by sight. But if I hand a seed to my two-year-old son and say, James, what is this going to grow into? He's going to go, I don't know. You don't know just by, by eyeballing it. It's the same way with us. Paul is identifying this thing naturally, and he's saying your body is a seed. It will die, and something else will take its place. He goes on and he says, also, there's different kinds of flesh all around you. Human flesh is different from animal flesh, which is different from bird flesh, which is different from fish flesh. They're all different. So there's not really a reason for you to doubt what's happening here. He points out that there are different kinds of heavenly bodies versus earthly bodies, how every star is different. He's literally saying you're struggling to believe something that is laid out in front of you all over the place. Things are different. Just because you may not fully comprehend them doesn't make it not so. And then he goes on and he talks about natural versus spiritual. He says what is sown is 
perishable. What is raised is imperishable. You see, due to Adam's sin, like I said earlier, death came into the world. What is sown is perishable. What lives will die. But due to Christ's life, we are raised from death. So what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. And he goes on and he gives these these back and forth kind of contradictory statements. He says it was sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. It was sown in weakness, but it will be raised in power. What he has in view here is this idea that in this life, we are sinners. But in the new life, we will not be. In the new life, there is no sin, there is no death, there is no sorrow or suffering. All things are made new. And so we have two different federal heads as our options. We either bear the image of the man of dust or we bear the image of the man of heaven. We are who we are under our federal head. We bear that image. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, which image do I bear? Do I bear the image of Adam, the perishable man from the dust? Or do I bear the image of Christ, the imperishable man from heaven? Which one am I? And Paul concludes this this chapter by expressing again why this is necessary. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You want to be a part of the kingdom of God? Then you better hope for a bodily resurrection because you're not getting one without it. This is why this is necessary. That is the last and final transformation of us into being with and like Christ. In this life, we have new hearts. In the next life, we have new bodies. What is perishable cannot inherit, the, cannot inherit what is imperishable. And Paul says we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, not everybody's going to die first. Some people are going to still be alive when this happens. But we're all going to be changed. So those people who died 2,000 years ago, right after Jesus did, they're going to raise with new bodies. And you're going to raise with new bodies if you're dead when it happens. And we're all going to be side by side forever in the kingdom, worshiping God. The victory over death is rooted in Jesus' resurrection and ours. That's why Paul quotes there and says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is sin. Because death is here, we are all born in sin. And the power of sin is the law. The means by which God tells us, you cannot know me apart from Christ. And that's where our victory lies is in Christ. So Paul concludes with verse 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, 
be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul gives us some instructions here that we can, that we can take away from this. Be steadfast. Continue moving forward. Continue pressing on. It is hard. It is hard to live as a Christian in this life. Keep pressing on. Be steadfast. He says be immovable. Be immovable. Don't let the things of this world shake your confidence in the things of God. Don't let the things of the world shake your commitment to the Scriptures. Be immovable. And then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Keep serving Christ. Don't think, this is my life. This is all I've got. I've got to live it. I've got to enjoy it. If this is true, and Christians believe it is, then you better work until you die or Jesus comes back. Serving Him for the sake of the kingdom. Because it's not in vain. It's not in vain. So the question I ask you today is, do you know the power of resurrection? Do you know the victory over sin, over death, through Jesus Christ? Because if you don't, you can. This whole series has been about finding hope in resurrection. But if you don't know Jesus, you have no hope in resurrection. You will be eternally dead under the wrath of God forever. And so this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, come and talk to me. I would be glad to share with you how you can know him. And if you do know Jesus Christ, I encourage you to commit yourself anew to be steadfast, immovable, abounding in every good work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for your grace and your goodness toward us. We pray, Lord, that during this time that you would speak to your people, shape our hearts, and make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.